Book One, Chapter Fourteen of the Bostonians. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Bostonians by Henry James. Chapter Fourteen. We ought to have some one to meet her, Mrs. Tarrant said. I presume she wouldn't care to come out just to see us. She, between the mother and the daughter, at this period, could refer only to Olive Chancellor, who was discussed in the little house at Cambridge at all hours and from every possible point of view. It was never Verena now who began, for she had grown rather weary of the topic. She had her own ways of thinking of it, which were not her mother's, and if she lent herself to this lady's extensive considerations, it was because that was the best way of keeping her thoughts to herself. Mrs. Tarrant had an idea that she, Mrs. Tarrant, liked to study people, and that she was now engaged in an analysis of Miss Chancellor. It carried her far, and she came out at unexpected times with her results. It was still her purpose to interpret the world to the ingenious mind of her daughter, and she translated Miss Chancellor with a confidence which made little account of the fact that she had seen her but once while verena had this advantage nearly every day verena felt that by this time she knew olive very well and her mother's most complicated versions of motive and temperament mrs tarrant with the most imperfect idea of the meaning of the term was always talking about people's temperament rendered small justice to the phenomena it was now her privilege to observe in charles street olive was much more remarkable than mrs tarrant suspected remarkable as Mrs. Tarrant believed her to be. She had opened Verena's eyes to extraordinary pictures, made the girl believe that she had a heavenly mission, given her, as we have seen, quite a new measure of the interest of life. These were larger consequences than the possibility of meeting the leaders of society at Olive's house. She had met no one as yet but Mrs. Luna. Her new friend seemed to wish to keep her quite for herself. This was the only reproach that Mrs. Tarrant directed to the new friend as yet. She was disappointed that Verena had not obtained more insight into the world of fashion. It was one of the prime articles of faith that the world of fashion was wicked and hollow, and moreover Verena told her that Miss Chancellor loathed and despised it. She could not have informed you wherein it would profit her daughter, for the way those ladies shrank from any new gospel was notorious. Nevertheless, she was vexed that Verena shouldn't come back to her with a little more of the fragrance of Beacon Street. The girl herself would have been the most interested person in the world if she had not been the most resigned. She took all that was given her and was grateful, and missed nothing that was withheld. She was the most extraordinary mixture of eagerness and docility. Mrs. Tarrant theorized about temperaments, and she loved her daughter, but she was only vaguely aware of the fact that she had at her side the sweetest flower of character, as one might say, that had ever bloomed on earth. She was proud of Verena's brightness and of her special talent, but the commonness of her own surface was the non-conductor of the girl's quality. Therefore she thought that it would add to her success in life to know a few high flyers, if only to put them to shame, as if anything could add to Verena's success, as if it were not supreme success, simply to have been made as she was made. Mrs. Tarrant had gone into town to call upon Miss Chancellor. 
she carried out this resolve, on which she had bestowed infinite consideration, independently of Verena. She had decided that she had a pretext. Her dignity required one, for she felt that at present the antique pride of the green streets was terribly at the mercy of her curiosity. She wished to see Miss Chancellor again, and to see her among her charming appurtenances, which Verena had described to her with great minuteness. The pretext that she would have valued most was wanting, that of Olive's having come out to Cambridge to pay the visit that had been solicited from the first. So she had to take the next best. She had to say to herself that it was her duty to see what she should think of a place where her daughter spent so much time. To Miss Chancellor she would appear to have come to thank her for her hospitality. She knew, in advance, just the air she should take, or she fancied she knew it. Mrs. Tarrant's were not always what she supposed. Just the nuance, she had also an impression she knew a little French, of her tone. Olive, after the lapse of weeks, still showed no symptoms of presenting herself, and Mrs. Tarrant rebuked Verena with some sternness for not having made her feel that this attention was due to the mother of her friend. Verena could scarcely say to her, she guessed Miss Chancellor didn't think much of that personage, true as it was that the girl had discerned this angular fact, which she attributed to Olive's extraordinary comprehensiveness of view. Verena herself did not suppose that her mother occupied a very important place in the universe, and Miss Chancellor never looked at anything smaller than that. Nor was she free to report, she was certainly now less frank at home, and moreover, the suspicion was only just becoming distinct to her, that Olive would like to detach her from her parents altogether, and was therefore not interested in appearing to cultivate relations with them. Mrs. Tarrant, I may mention, had a further motive. She was consumed with the desire to behold Mrs. Luna. This circumstance may operate as a proof that the aridity of her life was great, and if it should have that effect I should not be able to gainsay it. She had seen all the people who went to lectures, but there were hours when she desired, for a change, to see some who didn't go, and Mrs. Luna, from Verena's description of her, summed up the characteristics of this eccentric class. Verena had given great attention to Olive's brilliant sister. She had told her friend everything now, everything but one little secret, namely that if she could have chosen at the beginning, she would have liked to resemble Mrs. Luna. This lady fascinated her, carried off her imagination to strange lands. She should enjoy so much a long evening with her alone, when she might ask her ten thousand questions. But she never saw her alone, never saw her at all but in glimpses. Adeline flitted in and out, dressed for dinners and concerts, always saying something worldly to the young woman from Cambridge, and something to Olive that had a freedom which she herself would probably never arrive at a failure of foresight on Verena's part. But Miss Chancellor never detained her, never gave Verena a chance to see her, never appeared to imagine that she could have the least interest in such a person, only took up the subject again after Adeline had left them, the subject, of course, which was always the same, the subject of what they should do together for their suffering sex. It was not that Verena was not interested in that, gracious no, it opened up before her, in those wonderful colloquies with Olive, in the most inspiring way. But her fancy would make a dart to right or left when other game crossed their path, 
and her companion led her, intellectually, a dance in which her feet, that is, her head, failed her at times for weariness. Mrs. Tarrant found Miss Chancellor at home, but she was not gratified by even the most transient glimpse of Mrs. Luna, a fact which, in her heart, Verena regarded as fortunate, inasmuch as, she said to herself, if her mother, returning from Charles Street, began to explain Miss Chancellor to her with fresh energy, and as if she, Verena, had never seen her, and up to this time they had had nothing to say about her, to what developments of the same sort would not an encounter with Adeline have given rise? When Verena at last said to her friend that she thought she ought to come out to Cambridge, she didn't understand why she didn't. Olive expressed her reasons very frankly, admitted that she was jealous, that she didn't wish to think of the girls belonging to anyone but herself. Mr. and Mrs. Tarrant would have authority, opposed claims, and she didn't wish to see them, to remember that they existed. This was true, so far as it went, but Olive could not tell Verena everything. She could not tell her that she hated that dreadful pair at Cambridge. As we know, she had forbidden herself this emotion as regards individuals, and she flattered herself that she considered the Tarrants as a type, a deplorable one, a class that, with the public at large, discredited the cause of the new truths. She had talked them over with Miss Birdseye. Olive was always looking after her now and giving her things. The good lady appeared at this period in wonderful caps and shawls, for she felt she couldn't thank her enough. And even Dr. Prance's fellow-lodger, whose animosity to flourishing evils lived in the happiest, though the most illicit union with the mania for finding excuses, even Miss Birdseye was obliged to confess that if you came to examine his record, poor Celia didn't amount to so very much. How little he amounted to, Olive perceived, after she had made Verena talk, as the girl did immensely, about her father and mother, quite unconscious, meanwhile, of the conclusions she suggested to Miss Chancellor. Tarrant was a moralist without moral sense. That was very clear to Olive, as she listened to the history of his daughter's childhood and youth, which Verena related with an extraordinarily artless vividness. This narrative, tremendously fascinating to Miss Chancellor, made her feel in all sorts of ways, prompted her to ask herself whether the girl was also destitute of the perception of right and wrong. No, she was only supremely innocent. She didn't understand. She didn't interpret, nor see the portée of what she described. She had no idea whatever of judging her parents. Olive had wished to realize the conditions in which her wonderful young friend, she thought her more wonderful every day, had developed, and to this end, as I have related, she prompted her to infinite discourse. But now she was satisfied, the realization was complete, and what she would have liked to impose on the girl was an effectual rupture with her past. That past she by no means absolutely deplored, for it had the merit of having initiated Verena, and her patroness through her agency, into the miseries and mysteries of the people. It was her theory that Verena, in spite of the blood of the green streets, and after all, who were they, was a flower of the great democracy, and that it was impossible to have had an origin less distinguished than Tarrant himself. His birth in some unheard-of place in Pennsylvania was quite inexpressibly low, and Olive would have been much disappointed if it had been wanting in this defect. She liked to think that Verena, in her childhood, 
had known almost the extremity of poverty, and there was a kind of ferocity in the joy with which she reflected that there had been moments when this delicate creature came near, if the pinch had only lasted a little longer, to literally going without food. These things added to her value for Olive. They made that young lady feel that their common undertaking would, in consequence, be so much more serious. It is always supposed that revolutionists have been goaded, and the goading would have been rather deficient here, were it not for such happy accidents in Verena's past. When she conveyed from her mother a summons to Cambridge for a particular occasion, Olive perceived that the great effort must now be made. Great efforts were nothing new to her, it was a great effort to live at all, but this one appeared to her exceptionally cruel. She determined, however, to make it, promising herself that her first visit to Mrs. Tarrant should also be her last. Her only consolation was that she expected to suffer intensely, for the prospect of suffering was always, spiritually speaking, so much cash in her pocket. It was arranged that Olive should come to tea, the repast that Stella designated as his supper, when Mrs. Tarrant, as we have seen, desired to do her honour by inviting another guest. This guest, after much deliberation between that lady and Verena, was selected, and the first person Olive saw on entering the little parlour in Cambridge was a young man with hair prematurely, or, as one felt that one should say, precociously white, whom she had a vague impression she had encountered before, and who was introduced to her as Mr. Matthias Pardon. She suffered less than she had hoped. She was so taken up with the consideration of Verena's interior. It was as bad as she could have desired, desired in order to feel that, to take her out of such a milieu as that, she should have a right to draw her altogether to herself. Olive wished more and more to extract some definite pledge from her. She could hardly say what it had best be as yet. She only felt that it must be something that would have an absolute sanctity for Verena, and would bind them together for life. On this occasion it seemed to shape itself in her mind. She began to see what it ought to be, though she also saw that she would perhaps have to wait a while. Mrs. Tarrant, too, in her own house, became now a complete figure. There was no manner of doubt left as to her being vulgar. Olive Chancellor despised vulgarity, had a scent for it which she followed up in her own family, so that often, with a rising flush, she detected the taint even in Adeline. There were times, indeed, when every one seemed to have it, every one but Miss Birdseye, who had nothing to do with it, she was antique, and the poorest, humblest people. The toilers and spinners, the very obscure, these were the only persons who were safe from it. Miss Chancellor would have been much happier if the movements she was interested in could have been carried on only by the people she liked, and if revolutions, somehow, didn't always have to begin with one's self, with internal convulsions, sacrifices, executions. A common end, unfortunately, however fine as regards a special result, does not make community impersonal. Mrs. Tarrant, with her soft corpulence, looked at her guest very bleached and tumid. Her complexion had a kind of withered gaze. Her hair, very scanty, was drawn off her forehead a la chinoise. She had no eyebrows, and her eyes seemed to stare, like those of a figure of wax. When she talked and wished to insist, and she was always insisting, she puckered and distorted her face, with an effort to express the inexpressible, 
which turned out, after all, to be nothing. She had a kind of doleful elegance, tried to be confidential, lowered her voice, and looked as if she wished to establish a secret understanding, in order to ask her visitor if she would venture on an apple fritter. She wore a flowing mantle, which resembled her husband's waterproof, a garment which, when she turned to her daughter or talked about her, might have passed for the robe of a sort of priestess of maternity. She endeavored to keep the conversation in a channel which would enable her to ask sudden incoherent questions of Olive, mainly as to whether she knew the principal ladies, the expression was Mrs. Terence, not only in Boston, but in the other cities which, in her nomadic course, she herself had visited. Olive knew some of them, and of some of them had never heard, but she was irritated, and pretended a universal ignorance. She was conscious that she had never told so many fibs, by which her hostess was much disconcerted, although her questions had apparently been questions pure and simple, leading nowhither, and without bearing on any new truth. End of Book One, Chapter Fourteen Recording by Roxana Nazari